vision is different, of course. Every local church has its peculiar context, its peculiar setting, its peculiar opportunities and abilities and gifts that shape its fingerprints. Vision is that fingerprint. A church's vision for ministry is that fingerprint. Now again, like I did two weeks ago, I'm going to totally ruin that entire metaphor and say that this fingerprint can change. The fingerprints on your hand, as I understand it, don't change. But the fingerprint of the church, its vision, can change over the course of time as circumstances around it change. Purpose is why. Purpose answers the question, why does the church even exist? That's what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And we'll return to that in January in some earnest to to revisit that in some more detail. Why does the church exist? Mission answers the question, what? What is the church supposed to be doing? And these two things are the DNA, the genetic strand that never changes in any church. Purpose and mission. Vision answers the question, how? How is a church supposed to go about being what it's called to be and doing what it's called to do? How is a church to do that? And that varies from church to church. And that's what what our church, what New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church needs to begin to clarify together in the coming days ahead. But to get to vision, you first need to know your purpose. You first need to know the why. Why does the church exist? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and we saw how the the, the purpose of the church is a covenantal purpose. It is to be the presence of God on the earth. From Genesis to Revelation, God shows us in Scripture His intent to be with His people. From the very beginning to the very end, that's God's intent, His covenant. His covenant is, I will be with you. I will live with you and walk with you. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's his purpose. And he, he expresses that now in this age, according to scripture, through the church. To get to vision, though, you also need mission. You need to know the what. What is the church to do? And here in this passage, we see that it's a matter of the coming of the kingdom of God. After all, how does the New Testament begin? We read that a while ago in the the scripture reading that we had from Mark chapter 1. John the Baptist came preparing the way for the coming of the Messiah. And John, both John and Jesus, came preaching the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus comes on the heels of John the Baptist. And what does he say? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus is saying all that God has been doing from the very beginning, from Genesis, and that he will continue to do to fulfillment to the end in Revelation, all that God has already been doing all that time is now fulfilled in me. I'm here. The kingdom of God has come to make all things right. The bearer of truth has come to set things things straight. A few weeks ago, you might have seen in the Dallas Morning News that fascinating and really heart-wrenching series of articles about a 20-year-old woman now who was known as the girl in the closet. Maybe you saw that. And it was heart-wrenching and awful. This girl at birth was adopted. She was put up for adoption by her birth mother. 
who didn't want her, couldn't care for her, and so she put her up for adoption to a couple who took this young child, this baby, and they had this baby for about a year and a half until the birth mother, through some legal technicality, went and reclaimed her child from the adoptive parents. But she didn't want her. And it's an odd picture of psychological uh, distortion in this particular woman, but she took her biological daughter and over most of the next six years had her locked in a closet and abusing her in awful ways, she and her boyfriend, in, in just horrible ways. And this this documentary in the newspaper kind of painted pictures of, the, of different parts of that whole story. And the girl, who's now 20 years old, as a child, she had nothing. She had no Bible verses in her memory. She had no good words coming into her head from anyone. She was simply locked in a closet almost all the time. And all she had was a sliver of light coming beneath the door. And she knew in her heart of hearts, because she's made in the image of God, she knew that there was something to be made right. She knew, although she had had no other real experience that she could remember of life except for this dark closet, she knew that something was outside that door where she really belonged. And it's heart-wrenching to see how she expressed the conflicted desires, how she wanted nothing more than for that door to open so that she could go and be where she belongs. And yet, she wanted nothing less than for that door to open because she knew when it did, evil things happened to her. She knew that there was something more, that something had to be set to rights. And the kingdom of God comes for that purpose. The kingdom of God comes at the church being the presence of God on earth to deal with doubt, to clarify belief, and to deepen faith. The mission of the church is to proclaim this more, to make things right, to bring the kingdom of God to bear on all of the world. So what are we supposed to do as a church? For that question, we turn to this Easter resurrection passage. If Jesus hadn't risen from the dead then all we could do is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But he did. He did rise from the grave. And having conquered death, he told his disciples what they are to do. They are first to persuade doubt with truth. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations. As you go, make disciples of all nations, of all ethnos is the Greek word that he used, ethnic groups, of all peoples, whoever they are, wherever they live, whatever their culture is, make disciples of all peoples of the world, he says, all cultures and tribes and tongues. And so the church set out to persuade both unbelievers and believers. Now, We here in the 21st century in Dallas, Texas, don't have to set out and go very far to reach all peoples. They've come to us. It was fitting to make the announcement about For the Nations this morning. I've been informed by Cameron that a purpose, a reason for the existence of that organization is because Dallas is the second greatest location in the United States for refugees from other nations around the world. They have come to our city, second only to Houston in the population of refugees seeking 
safety in another country, Dallas, has an enormous population of people of all ethnic cultures. All the ethnos have come to us. And Jesus says, make disciples of all. The mission of the church is to persuade the doubts of unbelievers. Now, the gospel always has an appropriate approach to it. You have to know that that you can't just say to, to someone who's not a Christian, you can't just say, you know, you should try Christianity because, well, you know, it works for me. It makes my life better in these ways, and, and it, it might make your life better in these ways, too. There might be some truth to that statement for you, but that just doesn't work. You have to realize that doesn't, that doesn't reach people. Because if, if you're not a Christian, you might have had someone say that to you, and you, in your heart, respond, well, I'm glad that it works for you, but I've got other things that work for me. And we can both just be happy and agree to disagree. That doesn't get you anywhere. There are appropriate ways to approach persuading doubt with truth. One of them would be to say, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, what would you say to him as to why he should let you into heaven? And that might work for some, but one problem is most of us don't think we're going to die tonight. And so the sense of that is not urgent at all. And others might say, well, I don't believe in heaven anyway, so that doesn't matter to me. You could say, what will you do with your guilt? Because we all have some sense of guilt. And what will you do with it? And in some sense, that helps and can work for some. But nowadays, I mean, in the world in which we live, guilt is seen by many as just a social construct. I don't really have guilt. That's just, it depends on what culture you live in. And different cultures see that in different ways. And, well, you know, if you lived in that culture, you wouldn't feel guilty about this or that. So you can't really talk about that. Or you might say, what, what would change look like in your circumstance of your life? Because everything is not perfect in your life. And how might it change in order to become what you know it should be? And, you know, that might work to some extent and be helpful to people, recognizing that change needs to come in your own heart and not just in your circumstances around you. But... That doesn't always work, and many people are just content in their circumstances and with themselves as well. And so there's still another approach that draws, really, non-Christians and Christians all together because we're really more alike than we are different. We all live in the same world, and we're made of the same stuff. And because the mission of the church is not just to persuade the doubts of unbelievers, but also to persuade the doubts of believers... You have doubts. You have doubts. It's not just the skeptical one who needs persuasion. It's the Christian too. I mean, verse 17 is a kind of a funny verse. And when the disciples saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That kind of surprises me. You know, it kind of surprises me, to be honest, that any of them worshipped at all. I mean, I would think that if I were there and I saw him, I know that he was dead. I saw him die. He was in a tomb. And now he's standing here talking to me. I would have been terrified. I would have turned and fled. I would have run in fear of what I thought was just a delusion. This man can't exist anymore. He's dead. Of course they doubted. Of course you have doubts. Of course you do. They doubted because they had a belief system in place already. One that told them that dead people don't rise from graves. And you and I would tend to agree with them in our daily experience, you know. We, would, we have a belief system in place. And what we have to recognize is that your doubts are actually alternate systems of belief. 
that's what they are. They express those things. You know, a Christian might say, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I sure do worry about my 18-year-old going off to college in another city. Or I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I sure do worry about the economy and my job security because I just don't know what I would do if, if I lost my job. I, I believe God's sovereign, but you know what? No, you really don't. You really don't believe that God is sovereign. A Christian might say, I believe that God's forgiveness frees me from my guilt, but I kind of feel guilty about how I've let my parents down or how I did that and I wish I hadn't done that. I kind of feel guilty about it. You know what? No, you really don't believe that God's forgiveness frees you from guilt. As a Christian, we have alternate belief systems too that step in the way of our belief in the gospel. Our doubts override because of our alternate beliefs. We have an alternate belief system that says, my personal control is more important than the, the sovereign control of a God that I can't see. And so I worry. We have a belief system that says, it's more important for me to forgive myself than it is for anyone else to forgive me. And I can't forgive myself, therefore God's forgiveness doesn't matter. And do those belief systems hold any water? Our doubts express our belief systems. Likewise, for a non-Christian, the same kind of thing. You know, a non-Christian may say, I doubt Christianity because all religions are really just the same in the end. They're all valid. They're all equal. So pick and choose. Which one do you like the best? Well, you know, that expression of doubt reflects an alternate belief system. One that requires a very certain view of God. You know, if you're to say that all religions are equally valid, then that requires that you believe either there is no God, or there's a pantheon of gods, all of whom are equal, or the God that exists is just simply not concerned with what you believe. You have to believe one of those three things in order to say that all religions are equally valid. And does that belief system hold water? Or as a non-Christian, you might say, I doubt Christianity because evil exists. And if evil exists, there can't be a good God who's also powerful. Well, you know, that reveals an alternate belief system. It reveals one that says that you believe that in the absence of a good God, things can exist that are not evil. How could that be? If a good God doesn't exist, then... How can you call evil, evil? Does that belief system hold water? Your doubts tell you a lot, a lot about your certainties. They reveal what you believe. Your doubts reveal an alternate system of belief. And Jesus has come saying, go and make disciples of all nations. All authority in heaven and on earth has, has, has been given to me. Only the coming of the kingdom of God can bring truth to persuade your doubts. The mission of the church as well is to mark belief with grace. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, baptize those disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So what is the mission of the church? It is to mark belief with grace. Baptism signifies two spiritual realities that are only really true for a Christian, you know, cleansing and 
deliverance. And I want to show you a couple of strange scripture passages that, that get to this. The first one is this, from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter is one of those small epistles that's way back in the back of the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we read this very strange phrase. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Okay, Peter wrote this small letter to first century Christians who were enduring persecution in the world in which they lived. They did not live in a friendly world. And they needed to see how the gospel lifted them up out of the filth of the world in which they lived. And so Peter looks back. He looks back to Noah and the ark and the flood and he draws redemptive history together. He, he shows the narrative. Again, remember, the time is fulfilled, Jesus said. All these things are coming together. And Peter is doing the same thing. He's saying, look back to Noah. Do you remember that? The ark and the flood. Everybody, you remember that? You're learning that in, in childhood. And he says, baptism corresponds to this in that it saves you. Water cleanses you as it did with Noah, not the literal removal of dirt, but rather a good conscience before God. In other words, Peter says, Peter interprets Noah and the flood, and he says, the gospel is not just about commands. The gospel is about cleansing. The gospel is about the fact that God says, I'm going to require holiness from you, and I'm going to provide holiness for you. I'm going to cleanse you through the resurrection of Christ. Now, a skeptic is going to say, okay, fine. You promise that if I believe, then you're going to pour water on my head? Great. That makes it a lot easier for me. <laughs> you know, that's just not exactly inviting, is it? And besides that fact, you're doing that in order to cleanse me, to, to symbolically cleanse me of sins, which I really don't see anyway. Remember, some see guilt as being just a social construct, and I just don't see my guilt. Okay, fair enough. But there's another part to this baptism, to this marking of belief with grace, and that is it symbolizes deliverance. 1 Corinthians 10 beginning in verse 1, is another strange passage. And I want to read this for you. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rocket that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. The Corinthian church to which Paul wrote was divided. They were believers as they professed to be, and yet there were lawsuits among them. There were claims of superiority. There was inferiority. And though, you know, they would not wait for each other, and they came to the table. Some were better than others. They, they 
excluded some. It was, there was just division among the people in the congregation. And Paul wrote to them in that context because they needed to see how the gospel had delivered them from themselves, from their own selfish desires. And so to do that, Paul looks back. Just like Peter had to Noah, Paul looks back to Moses. Again, drawing redemptive history together. The time is now fulfilled, Jesus says. Paul is doing the same thing. Look back to Moses. Do you remember the story of the Israelites? Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was sold into slavery to Egypt. A famine. The family came to Egypt. Then for 400 years they were there. They became slaves. Moses was sent by God to deliver them from slavery. He did so by passing through the Red Sea as the Lord divided it. And, and Paul is drawing on that imagery saying they passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses, he says. In other words, they were identified with Moses. And on that ground, they were delivered. But most of them still were overthrown. Because they refuse to believe. Paul says, you're not identified with Moses. You're identified with Christ, who was the spiritual rock from which they drank. You're identified with Christ. You've been delivered from slavery. Now, our culture, the world in which we live now, has little interest in cleansing from guilt. We just have to recognize that. But it has great interest in deliverance from bondage. Our world, our culture has little concern for sin. That word is just not in our world's lexicon. It's just not there. You won't find it. It's not in the book. But our world has great concern for freedom. Christian, you have to recognize that the gospel always finds appropriate ways of approach. Not just to persuade doubt with truth, but to mark belief with grace. The church has a mission, and that is to mark belief with grace. You see how the narrative holds together. Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is now at hand. That is, all that the Father has been working from the very beginning is coming together in me. Peter says to his people, look at it, you see it in Noah. Paul says to his people, look back, you see it in Moses. God came to cleanse you. He came to deliver you. Now, church, go and mark belief with that grace of baptism. But finally, he says, the mission of the church is to increase faith with instruction. Again, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you go, teach those baptized to observe all that I have commanded you. To observe all that I've commanded you. He doesn't say to know all that I've commanded you. He says to observe it. Okay? We live in a denomination, and if you're visiting with us, you need to know that we are a part of a denomination that is, well, highly cerebral. Right? That doesn't mean we're smart. It means that we like to think. This is the muscle that we like to use. That's okay. It's an important muscle to use. But we're highly, highly cerebral. 
You know, in fact, as we kind of look about the Christian world, as we like to think and to gather and to gain information and to study and to talk. and to t- So we look around the Christian world and we think, you know, implicitly, let's just leave the making of disciples to the Pentecostals because they do that pretty well. You know, they're good at kind of drawing crowds and, and getting people in. And, and so let's just, they can make the disciples. And then the baptizing part we'll leave to, well, the Baptists. I mean, that's the name that they have upon themselves, and they do it really well. They baptize people all the time. They're baptizing people. And so let's just leave that to them. But the teaching part, okay, that's our wheelhouse, right? Okay, because we're so cerebral. And so let, we're going to teach people to know all that. That's not what he said. He didn't say teach them to know. He said teach them to observe, to remember, to recall, to live in all that I have commanded. Jesus wasn't after the transfer of data. Do you know that? Oh, data is involved, but that's not his goal. He's not concerned with the transfer of data. He says, teach them to observe. It's more than just knowing. It's paying attention to. It's keeping and maintaining and recalling. And what would these disciples, these 11 men on this mountain, speaking to a man who was dead and now is alive, what would they remember? What would they recall about him? I mean, they had lived with him for some years. He had walked with these men for some years. They had fumbled along in their doubts as he had taught and spoke and as he had worked miracles, as he had healed people, as he had brought dead people to life. They had fumbled around in their doubts And yet, even now, still, he does good for them. He's come back to them from the grave with what? With grace. He's come back to them and said, Okay, I know you still don't believe in me. I know I was dead. And your belief system says dead people don't rise. But here I am. And I know you're having trouble with that. But here I am. He comes back to them with grace. This is the thing that they would remember, that they would recall, that they would live in. Do you know one of the great apologetics for the Christian faith is what happened after this. These men dispersed from this moment to go and, and, and to travel out into the world to preach this good news. And every one of them died for it. They had nothing to gain They had nothing to gain by doing this, by going out and preaching this good news to people who didn't want to hear it, to people who were going to stone them to death for speaking it. And yet they did it. Why? Because they had seen a dead man rise from the grave. And they had lived in his grace. The resurrection had been passed off with a lie. I mean, we read it in this passage. A few dollars in some soldiers' pockets to lie. The governor's going to ask about it. Oh, don't worry. We'll keep him off your back. You won't get in trouble. And that's the story that was passed down. These men now had nothing to gain by doing what they did, and yet they believed. Increase of faith does not come by way of data transfer. Increase of faith does not come by memorizing an outline or by reciting a list of things. It comes by worshiping a king. Now, I want to make a point to say 
we're starting, as you probably have noticed, to put a, a simple sermon outline in the back of the bulletin. If you hadn't found it yet, you can find it in the back of the bulletin. And you're, you'll say, oh yeah, I wish he had told me already. Now I'd know where he was going. We're putting that there as it's kind of my thing. It's, just, it's sort of a pathway for you to walk with me or whoever's preaching, a pathway of clarity so that you can, can understand where we're going. And some people take notes in worship and some people don't take notes, and there are different thoughts about that. Martin Lloyd-Jones was one of the great preachers uh, of modern times in England, and, and his thing was you shouldn't take notes during a sermon because it's not a lecture. It's not data transfer. It's a spiritual exercise in which the Spirit of God is working on your heart, and you need to be ready to receive that. And if you've got your head down taking notes, you might miss something. That's fine. I, I see that. But I don't take notes during worship myself. Some people do because it helps them to think more clearly, and that's fine. I'm not saying don't take notes. But what I am saying is worship, growth in grace, increasing in faith is not data transfer. It's the clear reception of the words of God himself as the Spirit of God brings them to your soul and makes you new. We drink in data. But the church's mission is to increase faith by the knowing of the Savior himself. And that we proclaim. That we proclaim as his kingdom coming the kingdom that makes all things right. N.T. Wright is an author in England who, who's written some profound books. One of those books is called Simply Christian. I highly recommend it. It's a fascinating, brilliant, and, and stirring book for your soul. It's not just data transfer. And in that book, he says this. He says, The point of following Jesus is not simply so that we can be sure of going to a better place after this than we, when we die. Our future beyond death is enormously important, but the nature of the Christian hope is such that it plays back into the present life. We're called here and now to be instruments of God's new creation, the world made right, which has already been launched in Jesus and of which Jesus' followers are not supposed to be simply beneficiaries, but also agents. The church, the Big C, church universal, the church worldwide throughout all of history is an agent of this world made right. It's an agent of this new creation. It's an agent of the coming of the kingdom of God. This church, New St. Peter's Presbyterian Church, this church is an agent and has a role to play in the coming of that kingdom. The how is, again, for us to figure out together in days to come. But the other parts are totally and completely established. The purpose of the church, why does it exist? It exists to be the very presence of God here and now on this earth. The mission of the church, what is it supposed to do? It is to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God to persuade doubt with truth, to mark belief with grace, and to increase faith with instruction. And in this mission, the Savior says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Hallelujah. O Lord, we pray that you would grant us faith to believe this, to recognize that in your word you have called us 
to be agents of the coming of your kingdom. And we pray, oh God, that you would cause us to be equipped and able to do just that, to call people to belief, to mark them with your grace and to increase their faith through the instruction of your word, through knowing Jesus himself and the grace to which you call us. We pray that we as a church might do that faithfully together with great joy and with great faith in your word, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.